0: Welcome back to the second part of our panel discussion on the Grid Connections podcast, looking at the year of 2023 and our panel's predictions for what's coming for electric vehicles in the automotive market in 2024. For those of you who may be streaming or watching the podcast on YouTube or other channels, Uh, My apologies, I had to record this a little bit later at night, so the lighting for this first intro part and the outro today aren't the best, but for the actual panel, it'll be just like last time, so there shouldn't be any issue there. So continuing where we left off with our panel members, John McElroy of AutoLine TV, Lauren McDonald of EV Adoption, and Matt Teske of Chargeway, we focus on the increasingly influential role of Chinese EVs in shaping both the North American and global automotive markets. We explore how these vehicles are not only changing the landscape of competition, but also setting new benchmarks in technology and design. Our discussion then examines the pivotal role of software in EVs. We examine software's profound impact on consumer buying preferences, all tying it to the concept of what I like to call a user-defined vehicle. Car design that leverages software first and allows for a specific user to customize the car however they find fit something becoming a deciding factor for many younger buyers and in markets across the world. This really allows them to tailor their electric vehicle experience to their specific needs and tastes. And I think that's a big part of where we've seen the success in the startups is really putting this mindset first in car design. However, the transition to software-centric vehicles is not without its challenges. We shed light on how legacy automakers are grappling with integrating advanced software into their electric vehicle designs. This shift from traditional automotive engineering to a software-driven approach presents both opportunities and obstacles for established players in the industry. The panel also addresses a pertinent question in the EV space. Should software recalls be still referred to as recalls, or is a more appropriate term needed? This discussion leads to a broader conversation about the communication challenges most EV automakers face. We delve into how these companies are struggling to effectively convey information and updates to the public about their electric vehicles and associated recalls. Finally, our panel shares their predictions for the global electric vehicle market in 2024. They provide insights into emerging trends, potential market shifts, and what consumers can expect in the near future. Tune into this engaging episode of the Great Connections podcast to get a comprehensive understanding of these critical issues shaping the future of electric vehicles. Whether you're an EV enthusiast, industry professional, or simply curious about the future of transportation, this panel offers valuable perspectives and predictions you won't be able to find anywhere else. And with that, enjoy. And after, hours, you guys talk about this quite a bit, about BYD and their competition, leaving Asia, now going into Europe, how soon do you think that someone like them is going to make a launch into North America?
1: Well, you know, we're already seeing Chinese vehicles in the U.S. They're just with, you know familiar legacy brands old, old you know star, uh, right uh, right uh but as you guys know i mean the, the chinese a, a number of chinese automakers and suppliers are just flooding into the mexican market right. and you know they're clearly going to use uh mexico as as their entry into the u.s market and they may not have to pay uh, uh a, a tariff you know, there's 27.5% tariff on Chinese-made vehicles coming into the U.S., so that would get rid of that. They may not qualify for IRA money, but their cost levels are such that they probably don't even need it to be able to compete. So, uh, Neo has said it will be in the U.S. market by 2025. Uh, Look, they're all watching next, or this year's, presidential election. You know, if Trump gets in, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a, a slow walk of Chinese automakers coming into uh, the U.S. market. But who knows? I mean, there's talk right now of boosting the import tariff on Chinese vehicles to 40 percent. So even if Biden stays in, you know, uh, th- there's bipartisan support to keep the Chinese out any way possible. But uh The U.S. market, even though volume wise, it's smaller than China, it's far more lucrative. You can make a lot more money here than you can in China. And so the the Chinese automakers really see no choice. If if they want to be truly globally dominant, they've got to be in the American market.
2: Well, and I think that. I was just no, going to say, no I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the Volvo uh, XC30 uh, does. I mean, it's not going to come out till probably mid, middle of the year, mid to, or third quarter and stuff. But um, you know, it's be I, I think it's going to be sort of a telling moment if consumers even care. Like, you know, where the in the car. They won't care, Lauren. They, they don't. You, you can
1: already see. Right, because
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the people that are complaining on social media about Chinese made products are doing it on this device that's made in China. Right. Right. That's right. Right.
3: Well, but let's, but let's be very, let's be very clear and careful about that is the brands we're talking about right Both now, are. Volvo, Apple, they're not perceived no, they're as not. Chinese right. brands that's in right. America. And so Neo, BYD coming to the States, those are fresh brands. that's going to be something that they do actually have to tackle from an American branding perspective, is if for any reason that perception is different, it's a fresh new brand that no one's ever heard of. Just because Volvo manufactures a car in China or just because Apple manufactures their phones in China, that's not how Americans perceive those products. They will then all say, what's BYD? What's Neo? Oh, it's a Chinese brand of vehicle. And it's it's a fresh brand, and they're going to have that narrative to, to actually contend with. I don't think it's going to be that Americans are going to go, I don't see the difference it's like an apple iphone no i don't think I, that is going I, I don't, to be don't quite agree matt you know look
1: look at sales of the buick envision you know it's no secret that that's made in china it sells just fantastic
3: it's an american Correct. brand okay. Again, that's my point is is, is is apple was founded here in the united yeah. states volvo is seen as a swedish brand right. by most right. people that drive right. volvos it is they are not perceiving it as, just simply because it was made in china doesn't mean they understand that Maki yeah. e is made in Mexico right now. And if you ask a mock-e right. buyer, they're going to go, "It's made yeah. in Detroit, is yeah. it?" Well, yeah. it's an American product. It's a right. Ford. I mean, so this is a brand perception
1: discussion. You know, I, look at the sales success that the Chinese are starting to have in Europe, and I think that's a a, a litmus yep. test for what will happen in the American market.
3: Europe, yeah. is it, not it's not the United, United
1: States, States I know, but you know, just look at sales of MG yeah. in the UK. I mean, or Australia. Right, right. I mean, they're after the races yeah. and. uh all not American. Uh, I, I, so, it, I, uh, I, listen, I think, I, I it, think if you come into right the U.S. market what, with a, a very good looking car with, with great technology that is substantially cheaper, Americans are just going to go to it. And if you tell them it's Chinese, some will, yes. uh, I think a lot will.
3: I, so, we already see Tesla having a problem being an American company with certain segments of the American populace for why they won't buy it. And so that, that to me, again, it's a brand positioning piece, is those brands like Neon BYD need to be prepared to contend with that. I mean, that I, is just To a me, reality. it sounds like uh, back just,
1: in the 70s and 80s, will people really buy exactly Japanese cars? And then, or are they really yeah, going to buy it's... Korean cars? And, uh, uh, you know, Americans just tend to go to who can give them the best product at the lowest price.
3: Or or if it's positioned as being something that is actually cool, to be blunt. I mean, I had this, I had this exchange this morning on LinkedIn with somebody. They said, they said, well, why do you think that, you know, EVs aren't, why are they, why are they sitting at the lot? And I said, there's a variety of factors, but number one is people aren't clamoring into buy cars or run a new fuel type. They don't understand that's I'm sticking to it because I think there's a lot of evidence to point to that, but they said, well, then why are Tesla selling like crazy? That means your, that means your assertion doesn't make sense. I said, Tesla is cool. They don't actually have a freaking idea what they're buying. They want to have a Tesla. And then they find out after that, oh, God, like I have to figure out how to use this dumb thing. And one in five buyers in California went, I'm done with an EV because I can't figure out how to do this. Americans, by sake of how they consume products, oftentimes are based on FOMO or just this is cool. And they will justify purchases emotionally around those factors. And so Neo BYD, if they can, from a branding perspective, pull that off not as a Chinese company, but as a flash and flare, badass new car company, then yes, they will have success. But if there is any element of, this is not an American company, in fact, it's from China, and oh, what, what, what is China to us? Will then you get into political ramifications of that. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, like Apple or Volvo, they're gonna be fine. I don't think I think, so I think
0: this is actually a perfect segue to the third part of this which is software because I think you're totally right Matt at least for like the short term there is for the brands that people know that are Chinese and they don't even know the brand there's going to be a lot of skepticism but I think John hit it Mm -hmm. on the head with uh, Toyota Honda every all these Japanese brands that were coming in in the 70s they had kind of different negative connotations there was a lot of people between the price losing jobs World War II um, that they eventually overcame and are doing very well I think long term it'll be fine but the big yeah, well, thing, that took
3: decades in some cases, hey, if we're being honest to ourselves. But they've
0: got the, yeah. uh, BYD is a company that can make that. Like, it's one thing to say a Lucid. I don't know if they're going to be here in decades. BYD has the volume to battle it out for decades. I think mm-hmm. they can do that. Yep.
3: they got Warren Buffett,
0: right. ready, baby. You're right. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe centuries. We'll see. But uh, the, the big thing, too, then, is obviously going back exactly to, like, why do people buy Tesla's uh, software? They don't know that's why they're buying it, but it's the experience. It's these now like new forms of luxury, and who does software really well in new EVs? Chinese car companies, and I think yeah, that's,
3: that's that will be. And that's how they're doing the whole, it in Europe. To be honest, they they obviously yeah. don't
0: have I think as much negative connotations to American buyers in Europe, but that's how they're winning a lot is one price, and then two functionality through software, and I think it'll take them longer. Yeah. But I I I think. We've seen this story play out before, that price along with a better service. I mean, that, that's the big thing is just making it easier now. You look at some of these Chinese car companies doing like Mio with the battery swapping technology. I don't think that long term is going to uh, take off. But it at least gets the conversation started and makes people open to a different way. They see it's like, oh, they're trying different things. They're an innovative car company. And I think the next big variable in this is generational. I think once you get under (laughs) 45, maybe even 50, they don't really care too much about whether it's, it'd be nice if it was made in America or there's the, there's the prestige Mm. of like, oh, I have a German luxury car. This is fancy or an, I mean, but once again, they're not fighting in that space. And so I think this is kind of a great way to go into the segment, unless there's anything else anyone wants to say around software being the big thing that EVs and the automotive industry has to contend with.
3: Oh, software is massive. I think, if, I think if, if Apple actually decided to use their war chest to actually build a car and they put their software in that car and they leveraged quality batteries and then said, we'll use the NAX connector, they would have a field day. Yeah. But I think that they're also, I mean, Tim Cook and others there are being practical around the idea of like, yeah, we just, we don't build cars. That's not what we do. I get that. Uh, they're at least being practical in that sense. But if they take their approach to software and put it inside of a vehicle, and it works as it does on your phone or on your computer at home, yeah, they will, have, they will own a lot in that conversation. And that's where I think that you know Google getting into this space, I mean, they are, I've met with the Google team that does a lot of what's you know happening on the automotive side of things. The reality is they look at what they're doing and saying, well, we're building this the way that we know how. And if the auto sector needs it a certain way for what their automotive application is, they need to tell us what that is. But the auto sector, candidly, doesn't know what that is because they've never been software as, as part of their core competency. They've always outsourced it. So you have a very capable company relying on the feedback from another company that doesn't have an understanding of what they need to compete with. So there is opportunity for a Chinese brand, whether it's Neo, BYD, or others, to step in and say, well, boy, we do this really well. And if they can package that within a vehicle that is branded in a way that, to your point, Chase, I don't, I don't disagree at all, that yeah, if you're under 50, 45-ish, you probably don't care. But as you go down in that age group, you also go down in how much they can spend. Which, and EVs don't cost $15,000. So,
0: and that's totally true. But I think that is kind of one of the advantages to the Chinese EVs as they traditionally are being the most price competitive. So while,
3: but to what John pointed out, trying to get those
2: things into the states, yeah, there's going to be sure. some big hurdles sure. around that. So maybe this will be the <laughs> so, 2027 20,
0: predictions when we're talking yeah, about it more seriously. Two, two things on yeah. the software
2: side. <laughs> I think um, I don't know if everybody saw the the Jim Farley interview back. I think it was in the, in the summertime um, where he uh, he talked about the loose federation of suppliers and that. Um, basically, oh, yeah. they had 150 different, I think that was the number, suppliers all writing their own software code, right? And it was like, A, the suppliers aren't very good at it, and B, it's all different code and they have to try to bring it together. And so now Ford is moving towards yeah. actually writing the code for all of their you know, components and stuff versus... Tesla and the Chinese, right? Tesla was started in in Palo Alto, et cetera, in the in the heart of Silicon Valley. And they designed the car with a blank sheet from the ground up, hardware and software to work together. This the software engineers all work in the same building, et cetera. Well, now they're in like right. two locations, but but basically, you know, it, it was software code that runs everything. Um, and we've seen CEOs being fired of OEMs because of software challenges and stuff. Like they're just so yeah. far behind uh, on that. Was And then the yeah. the the second point is just really you know just as 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 both John and Matt talked about. What have the Chinese been been building for the last twenty years? Electronics. They make consumer electronics, right? Hardware and software. Yeah. And when they the Chinese government decided strategically that they were going to dominate EVs globally 15 or so years ago, right? They basically invested in all these new startups who did what, right? Made electronic, new electronic products, EVs from the ground up, right? Designing the soft. And so it's like where we have the legacy automakers that are like, trying to figure out how all this stuff works together and hire software engineers, something they've never done before. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, they're, they're using a partsman approach yeah. as they always have in a lot of ways. And I think, and, and to, I think the example you brought up of Jim Farley and Chase and I talked about yeah. that in, in the last uh, conversation you and I had, that was a great moment yeah. of just candor and honesty around. It's like, look, this is not something that we do right now and we have a problem. So that's nice to hear that yeah, level both. of transparency, but then it also begs the question, of, so what is your solution? You know, and right now, to your point, it's, it still feels like it's like, well, we're tr- it, it is a completely, you know, it's a transition of their corporate culture and mindset about how do we go about building our products. And that's like turning the Titanic right. and missing the iceberg. I mean, that, that is tough. Uh, but to Ford's credit and Farley's credit, I think they've they uh, among the legacy brands are at least acknowledging yeah. this problem more better than others. And they're but to your point, it doesn't mean it's but the application of that acknowledgement is being uh, done perfectly because then you still have an F one hundred and fifty Lightning coming to market. And Lauren, to your point, kind of scratching your head of like, why yeah. wasn't that an Explorer or or something else that that you guys probably could have sold more of because your truck really buyers are just not it diving in, Europe, in,
0: which is so funny to me. Yeah, yeah,
3: right. Yeah. So no, but I, yeah, I think that um, Lauren, yeah. that, that point is, I think very big. And, and the more honestly we could see from the legacy brands around that would be, you know, uh, refreshing. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see it. And I think there's going to be a more of a, a very bumpy uphill road for a lot of them having to acknowledge and then pivot and the pivot may not again, as you said earlier, Lauren, yeah. it is reactionary. Yeah. It is not proactive on their
2: part. It's, and I it's, think that's it's also why it, well, the, the South so. Korean companies are are going to do well as well was because they're they're much more software electronic sort of oriented and stuff and 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 are newer. Right. They have different cultures and can move more quickly as well and stuff. And, we're, you know, we're already seeing it with the just the the, the charging curves. On, on the Hyundai Motor Group vehicles, right? They just crush it. They have the best, you know, sort of charging capabilities.
3: Oh, well, yeah, the, yeah, the, the way they've approached it from a voltage perspective was that was, they were the only other outside of, you know, Porsche Taycan and Lucid, they were the first to say, yeah, we're switching 800, 900 volt, and we're gonna do it differently. I think it's proving to be effective for them. I, there's some gaps they even have in their like, own software and cars still. Yeah. I mean, for my friends that have Ionic 5s and EV6s, um, but to your point, I also even from a, again, I think that that branding conversation we we're having earlier is they didn't have yep. really any baggage around who they were as a brand. Actually, going into the EV conversation, I, I'd
0: kind of push back on that. Uh, Kia, especially, has connotations of being kind of a oh cheap, well, yeah, yeah. And it, it's but, still, it, but well, it still has that with most consumers. Like I was having this conversation. Sure. I mean, we were having this conversation right before the podcast, Matt, about the uh, uh, the previous one where. It was a consumer who was like, "Well, that's cool that it can do all oh, the yeah. charging." Oh yeah. Oh, but it's a Kia. But it's a Kia. Yeah.
3: When I when I said baggage, I mean the the, the customers they've cultivated. That Fair. that's the lack of baggage Fair. is they True. they were able to pivot positioning True. on their brand and frankly to the designs they have. I mean, Ionic five, D uh, six, Most people that see them are like, "That's that's a cool car," and they've done a good job with that. And I think that combined with their technology and, and they didn't have to reconvince the public on. Right think of us a little bit different than yeah. where, hey, you've been buying a gas F-350 from us for 30 years. Yeah. How about this electric 150? I mean, I, I think that helped them in some ways. And they've and they've leveraged Chase, that just, very well.
2: When yeah, I think it, just one I'll quick it, like. uh, sort of follow-up anecdote on on Kia. Um, I, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you, but they're also surprisingly, like I have a my, my best buddy is like a long time high-end car buyer, right? You know, Porsches, he's, He's got you know yeah. Land Rovers etc., and we were texting after the Lucid came out with the um, uh, the Gravity right because he's a, he's a big huge yeah. three row SUV guy that's all he buys right and he goes yeah that and the the Kia EV EV nine like and I'm like I about fell out of my chair right like <laughs> <Right, laughs> <right. laughs> was that a joke? you know? I, I think that. <laughs> I, I think they have made
0: some successful inroads with more like traditional, like car people, maybe not average yeah. buyers. And I, I, think it is. It's like when you think of Kia, and obviously, I, and John, you kind of talked about this on Auto Line after hours a couple times about bringing in the former head of M at BMW, making a much more sporty brand. But I, I think especially between their ICE vehicles and then their EVs. I think the EV side of stuff, they've done a pretty good job of even kind of like how Tesla did. Like, you offer this car, you have three different variants. Here's the sport version. And I think this all ties back kind of to the software. And one of the things um, that on uh, the, yesterday's episode of after, uh, Auto Line After Hours about kind of how the uh, some of the traditional automakers are approaching software that I thought was really interesting was the conversation about like, oh, yeah, we've always done software. We've always had people. And that's true from like a vendor standpoint, I thought. But the big thing to me that's made the big difference is kind of what we're talking about here. It's to like the Rivian. It's to the Tesla that's got dog mode. It's no longer taking it to being software being something that provides a function in the background. It is now becoming something the user uh, directly experiences. It's not like, oh, I'm going to change. This is all software in the background that's changing from gears to make the car more fuel efficient that the user never knows about. It's about making it much more uh, actual consumer forward. And I think that's where Tesla, the startups, and especially the Chinese automakers have been very successful in software, is realizing they don't really care about uh, sometimes like this software or this line of code doing XYZ getting 3%. It's like, oh, I have dog mode in my car and as silly of a thing as that is that's a new luxury and uh, this is something i talk about all the time my wife even says she won't buy she won't consider a car now if it doesn't have a feature like dog mode yeah. and these are like the new generational and luxury features that the rivians the teslas of the world and there are there are other companies doing it but if they don't have and i think even the auto industry is uh and i'm now i'm going on a huge dad drive here but um once again, like to Lee, who uh, from Sino uh, Auto Insights, who we've had on the podcast and I originally came from uh, your program, John, was talking about like the auto industry has now started talking about the software defined vehicle. And I think that's a big misstep. And I agree with them because it's really about the user defined vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Software defined yeah. for sure. That's like kind of how you build a system approach. it. But really, if you want to build a car that people are interested in buy it is the user defined vehicle. And that yep. means a good app, good. Features for the dogs or whoever. And that is really what's changing and making, I think, a lot of these soft car companies that are ch- uh, having challenges with software. And since I realized we're kind of going over time as it is, I think it's time we drop the uh, Chevy Blazer bomb and talk about <laughs> how they're having their own software issues. And John, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that you can share from kind of being. Maybe in the Detroit area, but or just anything you've kind of
1: heard or your thoughts about this. No, I, I haven't heard anything different. I, I haven't heard anything different than I'm sure you guys have heard. You know, it's a disaster. Uh, the, the the whole Ultium program is is a disaster. You know, if if you go back two years ago, I thought, wow, GM, they've got their act together. You know, clean sheet design, totally new from the ground up. I thought by this time they would be leading the charge amongst the legacies. I mean, they're they're barely a step ahead of Volkswagen and Carriad in this regard. And it's got to be hugely embarrassing. And it comes down to, as as you guys know, uh, it's a 110 year old company. They have 110 years worth of policies and procedures that are not stupid. They're there because they got burned in the past for something and they patched it with a policy or a procedure to make sure that that didn't happen again, especially when it comes to safety systems. And so you've got that ingrained in them and you know uh, this is why we'll, we'll see if doug field at ford can pull it off but i think it was smart of farley to go hey guess what we're not going with any legacy person to run all our electric and software stuff we're going to the valley somebody's who been at tesla somebody who's been at apple somebody who started at uh, at segway and uh that's what it takes y- you need uh, a startup or a valley mentality to do this i don't care how good you are as a legacy executive, you can't run it, you just can't do it. You're not uh, uh, You're, you know, it's like trying to argue that the train companies should have recognized that they were uh, transportation companies. And if they had done that, they could have competed in the automotive industry. And it's like, no, they were great train companies, they were never going to make that transition. And so you're never going to have a legacy automaker successfully transform itself into uh, a software company which is essentially what tesla is john i'm just yeah no i mean,
3: I mean you just yeah i'm just i'm well. just curious yeah. your thoughts
2: on. on um you know so so Farley came out and divided the company into uh model e and blue right um but it, it's it's fundamentally it's still ford right like and 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 I I would be curious in your thoughts, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, everybody bitches and complains about, okay, they're going to lose $3 billion a year in EVs and stuff like that. Well, as you said, I mean, Tesla lost billions and billions of dollars for years. Lucid is going to lose billions and billions of dollars. Rivian is going to lose billions and billions of dollars a year until they get the volume up to, as you said, you know, it's hundreds of thousands a year. And then all that investment of billions in factories and people and getting the thing going, they're going to break even and make make a profit. Like should have Ford actually created uh, Model E as a true separate entity, as a startup, and gone to the capital markets, gone public, raised capital, and, you know, bring some people over, but, but fundamentally creating a, a new, new company and go to town.
1: You know, you know, Lauren, I thought that, that they might do yeah. that. And, and there's two other things that you're probably not even thinking of that would give them a massive advantage of that. If you organized Ford Model E as this standalone electric company, I think legally you could get around dealer franchise right. laws. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. number the two, UAW. I think you could say goodbye to the UAW yeah. and make sure that yeah. you set up in an area that is anti-union. Uh I'll bet they talked about that. I'll bet they talked about that in depth and uh, just couldn't, couldn't pull the trigger. It. <laughs>
0: yeah. it seemed more like it, the way they publicly positioned it was exactly what you're talking about, that it's going to be a separate company. But in reality, it was like Google becoming Alphabet. It was really more for right. a Wall Street Yeah, it and was really like for the CFO
2: and, to just re- then, report two different lines of, uh, of the right, That's and the, it. The instant, right. It's but otherwise everything's the same. Because,
0: yeah, because I haven't really thought about it much until the news recently when they were talking about like, oh, we're going to do hybrids again. It's like, so is that Ford E or Ford Blue or is there going to be now Ford Hybrid? Or like, what, where Fort does this, Gray. and it, it really is yeah. become, yeah, exactly. It's like, Fort Gray. Fort Gray. Yeah, exactly.
3: it's in the middle.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, I think, I think what we're speaking to is, is a big part of the mentality that a lot of the legacies have, have used over from a communications perspective and kind of how they position themselves for the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which is we are going to come out with a press release that is going to show that we are competing and then in various ways, as the onion gets peeled back over time, you realize like what level of depth was there into what they were doing. And and John, I think your point about how where Ultium has landed, I, I'll be honest, when Ultium Day happened right before COVID hit, I mean I had plenty of friends over there Lauren, I think you were there. Um and I remember just watching all the news and I thought to myself, This all looks like fluff. I completely agree. Like this this doesn't yeah. look like I, I I don't get the sense that there is an embraced understanding of what this is. I feel like this is a very good marketing day. Exactly. And I always felt okay. Then let's see the meat on the bone. Like what's going to happen with old team over time? And John, I think you did a very job of just kind of explaining the painful realities of where things landed at the end of twenty twenty three. Which is, and again, the word used was embarrassing. And I think yeah, to a certain extent, that's kind of just how it has to feel at some point. I and I I mean I've said this to friends you know, in the industry for the last year or two is I'm very over press releases. Yeah, I don't want to hear what you're planning on. I want you to show us what you've done. And there's not a lot of that from the legacy side in many ways. And I think it's starting to just, you know, if you if you don't have substance, people are going to call yes yeah. on yeah, you.
0: Yeah, I think and that's what I was surprised most about the Ultium announcement was like I saw it. It seemed much more to marketing to me uh, than like engineering look it it was a message to wall street
1: it was for sure yeah all these executives are compensated to a a bunch of different things right but one thing is boosting the stock price (laughs) and if two three years ago you said hey guess what we're doing evs too kablamo you got to pop on the stock price (laughs) and so that that's what all that messaging was about but i'd add one more thing too matt i think a lot of these executives have been learning like certainly i have you know as i've dug deeper and deeper into tesla there's another uh, you know uh layer to the onion right you keep peeling it back and learning more and more i think if you go back three four years ago when a lot of these decisions were being made five years ago they didn't know they didn't know they had to do software defined vehicles just didn't know they had to do that you know they 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 were you know just playing around with uh uh, digital twins and things like that. Now, they had technical people who knew that, but I'm talking about the people at the top. You know, th- they, yeah. they know the legacy business inside out and backwards. They had no idea that this tsunami of technology was about to overrun them, and they just haven't known how to react to it.
3: No, I, I think you're spot on on that. And kind of what I mentioned earlier, that, that four-factor aspect of what makes a positive EV ownership or production experience They really know the inside and outside of the car. That's what that is, what they do. But aside from that, they've been mechanical engineering experts for a century. And then they've lumped software as needed on top of that. And then they've leveraged infrastructure from fossil fuels for a century. So they really, to your point, John, they weren't comprehensively thinking about it that way. They were like, we build cars. So let's get a battery and we'll put a gigantic battery in this car and then we will make it so it starts. And we got dealers that can sell them. And then we'll say, look what we did. It's amazing. And to your point, that was so surface level of understanding of what they actually had to be
0: building. And I I think that's one part of it. I honestly, the thing that stood out to me was the announcement of the engineering of what they were doing. I was like, so many people were like, oh, this Ultium thing, it's going to be, it's going to change everything. It's going to have all these things. And every time they talked about what the Ultium battery pack was, I was like, there's nothing new here. It's literally cells to modules, modules to pack, yeah. and you make a really, really big pack. <laughs> like, and that's to me where I'm just like, there's there's no like, that everyone else is doing this. There's a reason these cars are so expensive and all you're going to do is make the most expensive part more expensive. I don't understand <laughs> that how this is going to disrupt or change. Like there's so many like vestigial, there was like so many vestigial parts in what the Ultium uh, positioning of what their technology was that I was like, so many car companies have already announced they're moving away from this. How is yeah. this going to actually be cheaper, better, more efficient? And uh, unfortunately, I guess I was right. But well, and even yeah. in
3: the the energy, you know, the energy approach. If we now have an energy wing of our automotive company. We're calling it our brand blank right. energy, you know, whatever. And people I know from the energy sector I and mean, utilities that have joined some of those teams. When I've had conversations with them, they've said. What's, what's interesting is they, there's, there's this acknowledgment of we know we need to be doing this, but they don't fundamentally understand how it fits into the process of what they're building. And it just always makes me think of that, that old Steve Jobs quote of, we hire smart people to tell us what to do. We don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. You know And in that sense, the other problem we see is, that I've seen at least, is that legacy OEMs are saying, we need to address some of these energy aspects, things of that nature. Let's bring in people that are from that sector that have experience. Well, those people walk in and they say, yeah, but we're not coming out of Tesla. Like we're coming out of the energy sector. That's what we've done for 20, 30 years. We don't know what they were thinking and doing. We know they're tapping into our world and they're using it as an aspect of what they do with their their company's core competencies, but we don't strategically know what we need to be telling you. So I think it's still, John, as you pointed out, it's just this lack of comprehensive understanding of how all that fits together in those layers as they've been peeling it back. And to your point five years ago, they were just staring at an onion, right. <laughs> going like, I guess we got to build an onion, you know?
0: But I, I think this is actually a really good transition into predictions for 2024, because this is exactly kind of what is kind of the reckoning that we've maybe been seeing in the second half of 2023. John, I know you talk about this on Autoline all the time, like, what, electric vehicles, autonomy, these were the hot things from like 2020 to 2023, and this second half of the year, there's been a huge pullback. And I think to what you're talking about, Matt, is especially true with the energy side of stuff. It's like, let's talk about this. Tesla's doing it. There's obviously a need for it. Once again, money's cheap. Wall Street really likes this. This will drive the stock price up, and we'll get there eventually and figure it out. We just have to get into the space. And I think there yeah. really has been a big reckoning and we've seen that with GM on the autonomy side for sure. And now it's kind of like they're just, Ooh. and it's I, I kind of don't blame them with how things have gone, unfortunately. They are kind of just like slowly just shrinking crews and all this stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised if within a year they don't have it anymore as a part of their business, kind of like how Ford dropped Argo. Uh, but that's a yeah. whole nother conversation. So with, well I, oh, what were you gonna yeah. say there, Matt?
3: Well, no, I no I think what you're pointing out is is let's be very honest about what we're all discussing in the sense that there's a lot of promise about what technology could be, right? But then there's the practical application of how do we bring it to market? And what do we need to be understanding about how we combine some of these things that have been siloed for a long time, if we're talking automotive and the energy sector, energy being utilities, for example. And I think that the way that I've I've been viewing it for the last five years or so is watching a lot of these promises come out. And I think Well, long ago when we developed out the advancement of the automobile and what happened with infrastructure around that, and then outside of that infrastructure for the energy sector and electricity, those were just sort of getting built out over the last hundred years. And we've got it to a place where a lot has been done to make our existing society what it is with those aspects of how we all live with electricity and transportation. We are now, we watched one company understand how to look at those two worlds and blend them. And I think what you pointed out, Chase, about Tesla being a software company first, that's kind of that. What is your foundation of understanding it? Right. And I think that the the canvas, I kind of say it's oftentimes, it's kind of like looking at a painting. The painting has been painted. The canvas has been filled in when it comes to transportation and energy. We're now asking these companies that made that happen reimagine that painting. And they're looking at it going, yeah, we don't know how to paint any differently though. Well and then Tesla said, but we do. And that's and that's what they did. And so it's it's like, I don't know how, I think John, you you said it very well in the sense of these companies are not going to be able to just reinvent and reimagine themselves that way. And even if it was, let's spin off this other company and call it a purely brand new company to avoid some of these hurdles we have, whether that's dealers, UAW, go down the list. Do they actually have the leadership in place to make it possible? And I just don't see that the visionaries that need to be in place for that are out there that they can just pluck out of nowhere and plop into a CEO or position to make that happen. Well, I
0: I think it goes to what you said earlier. Press releases are easy. They're easier than ever, especially with chat GPT. Uh, Actually designing it is hard. And then building it is really hard. And then there's that whole challenge of having to make money. And 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 selling it, too.
2: I mean, Matt talks about this a lot. We talk about this a lot. And and the third piece is if they can even build them and not have software issues and, and build them at volume, They have the dealer network that that apparently many of them don't want to sell them. But even if they do, they're not very good at it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think once again, that's a whole nother show. uh, Hour and a half plus podcast. (laughs) But what I think is really interesting is uh, it kind of goes back to that onion too. It's once again, was the Tesla and everything they're doing software defined? Yes. That's not why people bought them. They bought them because they were user defined. And I think that's still the last part of the onion. Maybe they're now kind of peeling back well, and kind of understanding yeah, I mean, that part. No one's going to buy uh, And I think the other part of this um, as the final software thing I wanted to cover real quickly was the panel's thoughts on should a software recall be called a recall or does it need to be, because not even in the case of Tesla, like Rivian, Ford, all these companies had it, it gets headlines, but it has none of the financial or other kind of impacts that, Traditionally, you see, maybe it has temporary Wall Street impacts, but from a liability or like from a reliability and customer experience, that is one of the biggest perks of a software defined and user from the user perspective of a recall that I just don't think most people even fully understand. I had so many people texting me saying like, oh, you got to take your Tesla. That's crazy. And I was like, and I didn't even know about it. It was literally people texting me about it only to find, oh, I already had the update, I guess. And then after driving 2,000 miles, I didn't notice anything different other than the images were bigger, which I think is fine. But I think that is like going into 2024, such a big difference in that user-defined vehicle that I'm curious of the panel. So it's like, should that now be a thing?
1: No, they should not be called recalls. A, you know, yeah. I, I, number yeah. one, I, I can't believe the media's fixation on recalls. I, I, we don't even report it's, them it anymore. Gets you know why? Because yeah. they happen every single day of the week. If you go to Nets's website and look at you know service actions, yeah. recalls, it's it's a constant barrage, and the media sort of cherry picks what it's like. In fact, if you'll notice, most recall notices happen after 5 p.m. Eastern time on a Friday, right. just so that they miss the news cycle <laughs> or try to miss the news yeah. cycle. And if it's an over-the-year update, who cares? I mean, you don't even know. So I'm with you, Chase. I don't think they should be called recalls.
0: I think Tesla and Rivian are great SEO for a lot of journalism companies. And so, like, if they can do a headline about it, great. But you look at the companies that are, have the most. Uh, I, I think I don't even think Tesla was in the top ten this year. I had the number somewhere, but for actual recalls, Ford was number one for the third year in a row, and all these other companies that maybe one of maybe. Uh, But they're not even companies that have the software OTA availability. And I I think a recall should be a thing. It should be called out, whether it's hardware or software. I just I think it is kind of silly that uh, it's putting the wrong focus on what needs to be done. I'm going to probably be the
2: outlier of of this group um, in in that um, I I think for the moment, right, recall is the term that the industry uses, the government uses, and we need to continue to use that. Right. Going forward, do we need to rethink that term or add a like a sub term under it, r- you know, recall software update or whatever it is, because the the, yeah, the yeah. fundamental issue to me is while we say, oh, you know, like your point, Chase, and I have a Tesla as well. It's like if you if you say yes to the software upgrade, it just happens. You don't have to take it to the. But if the government thinks it's a safety issue, like full self-driving or whatever it is, Yeah it's still a recall, right? Or, or, you know, maybe we use a different term, but it fundamentally, the government is saying there's a problem with the car that needs to be fixed. And I think we're, we're like, I mean, it's great for a podcast and social media to argue over whether recall is the right term or not, but it's not about the word. It's the fact that the government has found a problem with the car that they believe needs to be fixed. And so whatever we call it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I, and less, I don't think we'd argue less, on that. Uh, I don't know if well, anyone yeah. else
0: thinks I, I take think it if consumer, Right. And I, I, I don't and have any argument with that. If the government or someone has said yeah. there's an issue, that's a pretty good reason to yeah. change something. But I think, honestly, one of the other advantages to just calling it out more was one, just to avoid consumer confusion. But two, it might actually be a reason to push automakers to do have these software defined vehicles even faster just for the potential PR and all these convenience of not of like, okay, this is just a software defined update. I, I don't know, John. I know people have been talking about that and there's advantage of it. Do you think that would speed it up at all? If that Oh, look, hey, hey, what, what are the reasons why
1: the automakers want to get to software defined vehicles, which is an enabler to a user yeah. defined vehicle is uh, you, but getting back to the SDV over the year update thing. They can save a fortune. A fortune, exactly. yeah. you know, a couple of keystrokes, boom, the car is fixed and, uh, oh, that didn't work. Oh, here's another iteration. What, what, what did I just hear on After Hours yesterday? Tesla had to do four or five iterations of its latest, quote unquote, recall until it got it right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the, the other thing is, I, I can't remember the exact number, but something like 25% of all recalled vehicles, never go back to the dealership people just don't care you know when general motors right. had the ignition key switch thing i mean they were they were sending out people door to door knocking on doors please do this and uh, people get the hell off my go on <laughs> <Right. laughs> they didn't no, care that, that's,
0: so if, that is a much more practical yeah. and safe but, but you know what the if they get in an accident
1: gone. and they get damaged or you know hurt or whatever you bet they're going to sue the car company. So just from that standpoint alone, an automaker is going to be, yeah. wow, if we can fix this without even having to tell people, maybe legally we got to tell them, but uh, yeah, that, that alone is why they'll want to do it.
3: And Well, since, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it? it's a physical or digital recall. I mean, really. I mean, it's something like, I agree with you, Lauren, 100%. It is still a safety-focused element of why the government said, we have to address this. <laughs> You know and so i think that you know in that way do we ditch the word recall no but i mean as as we just all discussed it's like yeah but man does that get clicks if it's got the t word in front of it right. and recall and all of a sudden pow it turns into you know how right. many eyeballs I, on your website i, I think
2: the the, the so. other thing chase is is uh over there updates are are not all equal across across the automakers right like uh, awesome. I mean, that's something we right. can discuss well, like too. Rivian on, and even I mean, Ford bricked Tesla, a couple of his cars has with it down, software right? updates. But there's this still year. automakers that say, right. "Oh, that software update, you need to take it to the dealer and have the dealer do it." And so, right. so maybe yeah. there needs to be a third component, right? Like, you know, and that—that's sort of really my point is that it's—it's it's more than just, "Oh yeah, this like software update, just click yes on the on the app and and it's all good," because That may be your car, but it may not be the one that your neighbor owns, right?
0: Yeah, that's that is a great point. I've had software updates that have to go. I have to take the car in the dealership, and that to me is absurd. But I I,
3: so it's like a remote recall or an in person recall or something. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's all about. I mean, what we're discussing now is is the perceived inconvenience or convenience of what's happening with related to what is this recall, right? And if you can address it, and and I think you know, as John pointed out. Man, the, the cost savings that go along with we can address that with software and we know how to do it with software, that's huge. You know, and but the moment you inconvenience your customer further, that's that's the part where I think the argument's happening now with Tesla, it's like, yeah, I wasn't inconvenienced by this. Right. I, I literally my car was in my garage, my phone went <laughs> and I Looked at it, oh yeah I'll, I'll download that software update sure I'll go back to watching the game now I didn't have to go anywhere you know so I think that's it's that convenience factor that we're really mostly discussing because at the end of the day it's still about making the product more safe or better for the customer and the drivers and you know, in the end uh, but what did they have to do to resolve the problem that the OEM I had identified right you know and
0: it, and yeah, I, I mean obviously so. Tesla's the big one that was in the news lately but Rivian Lucid they've had these same things that yeah. solved over online and. I think it is I I think to your point, Lauren, too, the things that to me were really crazy that didn't get more attention was the software update Rivian sent out that then kind of prevented them not able to actually access the car. They could drive it, but they couldn't access the computer. Not good. And then the Ford one, which was really temporary, but it just stopped the car altogether. And like to be realistic, there is pros and cons. It's any technology has pros and cons. And for this over the air update. It's mostly good, but once again, it goes back to not having the right software know how to execute what, it when, right. Um, is also something to be yeah. One naive. one
2: quick thing that that I was thinking about, and Matt talks about this, like I think in his sleep, right? But but your, your question is about language, Chase, and fundamentally, yeah. it struck me as we were talking about this that everything we we've been talking about. EV charging, sure. like you, software, you go down the list, recalls, etc. It's, it's both for the industry and the consumers and the regular regulatory agencies and the government the states and everybody like it. EVs are an entirely new product category and an entirely new language. Right. And as if we go back to the yeah. very beginning, early conversation, right. Like, you know, I had a, Cousin, walk up and years ago Thanksgiving and looked at the Tesla. Oh, that's a hybrid, right? Like people just don't understand right. the language, right? Um, and that's, yeah. you know, that's Matt's whole reason for existence, right? Is like we just have not done a good job <laughs> in this industry. The, the automakers have failed at educating the consumers. It's like you know, spend two million dollars on a on a, a humorous Super Bowl commercial, and it's like. No, that yeah. doesn't help people understand That's what an EV is and why they should buy it, right? Like just...
3: Well, the, 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 as you're pointing out, the human element is, is the most important part of the discussion. And oftentimes it turns into, you know, we hear right now, you know, the market will demand that they want these products. And right now the dealer argument with the 4,000 dealers that signed that letter to the Biden administration said, we're not, we don't think we're seeing that. We don't think we're seeing market demand. And we're we're seeing mandates, and even from a consumer perspective, we hear that we just go to any owners group, anything on social media related to EVs. How many people will you see? And I think Johnson earlier, about it, you will pry my V eight from my cold dead fingers, kind of thing. If if they feel like something's being forced upon them, they will say, Mm-mm. What, "What? Like well, not all, but some might say, oh, I see why you're doing this out of altruism or something.' Thank you, government, but." That's the, it's all human factor. Right. They're not understanding what we're saying oftentimes. They're not seeing the value because of how we aren't explaining it for what it does to benefit their lifestyle or their life. And it all comes down to, are they believing what they're hearing? And it is unfortunate that so often, and Lauren, I appreciate bringing it up, is yeah, the communi- how we communicate this, even the, the discussion of gas car, hybrid, plug-in hybrid, pure electric, it, that clearly didn't work. It's not resonating, it's not working. The idea of kilowatts to explain charging ain't ports. working. Stop doing it, you know. And so
1: charging what's, ports. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Oh there, yeah, yeah,
3: ports. Because everybody puts on a sailor's hat and they go to port when they go to like. I mean, like, I, I mean just the level of lack of appreciation J-1 for communication. 72 like, like,
2: Who yeah. thinks this <laughs> up?
3: You know, and it's it goes down. The list goes on and on. And I think that I mean, if if we land on that, I mean, you can build the greatest software in the world. You can build the best, most cool product in the world. But this is where people like again, Steve Jobs, to his credit. I mean, he was he was difficult to work for, but he was one of those people that understood how to take that technology and translate it into something that you're going to see value in this. And and it was the idea of we're not we're not going to build what we think people are asking for. We're going to build what we understand they will want. And I don't know if that's happened a lot in the EV space. There's been there's been a lot of that, you know, well, again, Steve Jobs reference back in 97 when he was brought back to Apple and was asked, what have you been doing? And he said, we got two options. We can either sit down in the room with the engineers and ask them what kind of cool stuff can we come up with, do that, and then go try to figure out how to market it. Or we can ask, where do we take our customers? And that's what they built their entire product existence around. And I think that that's a big problem right now for how we're positioning EVs because at brass tacks end of the day, what are we discussing? It's a car still, it gets you from point A to point B. There are some fringe benefits around convenience by sake of you can fill up at home, but at the end of the day, how does it change people's lives? And right now they perceive it changes it in a negative way. Even though those of us who drive EVs can say it's no, it's, it's not actually, it's phenomenal in all these ways. That's, as you point out, Lauren, that's all communication. That's all what that is, and it's been just dismissed by so many in the industry for the last 10 years, and it's just kind of baffling. I don't get
0: it. I agree. I, I think one thing – I mean, there's a lot I've learned today, but one thing I've clearly learned is we could talk about this all day. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, this is – clearly, we have some uh, <laughs> interests and passions about this, these topics in space, and so – I figured what we should do before this. Uh, we've already broke the record. I think this is the longest podcast I've recorded, so we might have to break into two parts. But um, let's real quickly, <laughs> to kind of wrap this up, I'm just going to kick it off with kind of predictions I have for 2024. And then if we can just all go around and kind of maybe give any of that stand out. Um, uh, kind of in preparation for this, I was thinking one thing that we used to see, like when the Model S, uh, like 2012, all that time, like one of the things we saw consistently was that battery and EV range was going up. Obviously, a lot of that was around innovation and uh, efficiencies made in the cars. But a a big part of it also was the actual chemistry and technology in the cells. And it's been interesting to me that we really haven't seen a lot of change in the last few years, essentially since the pandemic, around the supply chain side of that. And I think a big part was the demand. And now that we're kind of going back to a point where maybe EVs and cars aren't selling as fast, and I I've even was talking to a a supplier the other day about it, that one of the things that they're now selling this spring will have the same density for their LFP pack, and then the NMC version of this pack that they're selling, it's going to be 30% more dense, uh, energy Mm dense. And I, I think that is one of the big things that we're going to start seeing again, is now that there wasn't just such a crazy demand to get batteries, get cars, and that's starting to pull back. One of the areas that we're going to see more com- competitiveness is probably around still efficiency, but actually the energy density in the battery cells, which means lighter cars go farther, yada, yada, yada. That's a hopeful, but one of my kind of predictions for 2024 to be competitive in the space. Um, the second, I don't know if it's a prediction or it's kind of a, I want to wait and see whether the $7,500 credit that will be available at dealerships While that's going to make it easier for people to take advantage, I don't know if that's going to be a huge motivator for people to now buy EVs. I think it might be marginal versus, there's been a lot of excitement about that. And I think it's a good thing, but I I really think it's going to be a marginal uptick versus like, oh, people are going to rush in to get that 7,500 bucks, like a cash for clunkers thing. Now that they don't have to deal with the IRS, the dealership deals with it. We'll see, but my second prediction is that's going to be a marginal improvement at best for EV sales this year. Um, and then the third I had was: will okay? So will the slowdown of the kind of EV sales, especially by the traditional OEMs like we've talked about, kind of pulling back from EVs and going to hybrids, is that really only going to? Is that going to be a successful short-term play for the automakers, or is that actually just going to kind of give fuel uh, put? gas on the fire to the startups that are already all bev in and they can kind of just lean in and you'll start seeing Tesla's market cap or uh market share start to go up again which I think we did actually already last quarter but Rivian and all these other startups that are just fully bought in on bevs are really just going to be able to really uh take advantage and become known as the EV companies in the space so that's my big 3 for 2024 and That's even a, an open question, are, I guess. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Let's talk about first? I mean, I so what, <laughs> so we've got the seventy five hundred dollar tax credit. I, I, I agree with that take in the sense that they have, again, back to communication. They have to position it right. right. If you if you show the price of the vehicle and all of a sudden you say seventy five hundred dollars cash off today, and it, it goes from thirty thousand to you know twenty two thousand five hundred or something that's a big deal. That's how people perceive benefit and value and savings. So, um, yeah, and then how the tax credit worked before was never actually something that people fundamentally understood. Right. And you had to be in a certain tax bracket to really get some benefit out of it. Um, so I don't disagree there. I think that how that's been communicated is still going to be a difficult selling point unless we change that. Um, I think your point about b- uh, batteries and energy, uh, you know, and energy density, the battery pack and, and, and innovation there. Do I think that's going to Come out in 2024 as a as a big talking point. where we see some movement there? Hard to say. Uh, I mean, QuantumScape QuantumScape just had to announce, yesterday about how they what it was like 500,000 mile cycle they had on on their pack they've been testing. So there's there's obvious movement there. Um, I think what we're what we're seeing is we're kind of stretching the limits of existing battery chemistry and technologies that we have, and the promise of solid state has been hanging out in the air now for what seems like forever. Right. And I think even if it was able to, someone could announce that, hey, we've got a, like Toyota, we have a 600 mile range vehicle, isn't it great? We but yeah, have, but when is it gonna come to market and how fast? And then even when it does come to market, how does that marry to how you fill it up? You know, cause there's still a lot of, you know, to unpack with that. So I think we've, we've in a lot of ways, this conversation's kind of proving, I think we've exhausted a lot of the really great talking points that could come out of EV ownership. And I think it gets back to, are people perceiving value? right? And you know, and I think that's a challenge right now that is not going to be solved by the battery technology that exists today or by another 7,500 bucks off the car at the showroom, um, unfortunately. Uh, if I have a prediction for 2024, I think what we're going to start seeing is some, some realities around practical conversation around what does this product actually mean for people? Because um, there's been a ton of promises and already people are saying, you, you didn't live up to it, company XYZ. Uh, and I think that that level of coming down to earth is gonna be very real. But to your point, Chase, I think it's gonna benefit brands like Tesla. I think they're still gonna be able to say, we still stand out, you know, and, and I don't know how that's gonna be different this year. Um, so this year I don't think it's gonna be all that transformative in my opinion, to be honest. Sorry to be a wet towel on that one. No, I, I was, I was going to joke and say, well, after
0: almost two hours, that was yeah. the takeaway. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah that was so the well, no, well, let's be clear. Yeah. I mean, no, again, I'm, like I'm our last conversation, up. not to not be optimistic, but we there's a, there's a lack of pragmatism that has you know, not been applied to these conversations. The hype train has been going at 1,000 miles an hour sure. on EVs for the last five to six years, and it's coming down to earth in a few ways, and I think that's good. Because at the end of the day, if you make promises you can't keep to the general public around what this will do for their life and they don't perceive value, well, then they, there's a stink that comes along with that product after a while. And that's not good. And, and I do not that's where I always tell people from the EV you know, community, let's be very practical about how we position this. We don't say things that are ridiculous like it takes me 10 seconds to charge my car because I plugged it in and walked in my house. Right. That's not what the general public is asking about, stuff like that. I think that that's what we're seeing here is the practical applications of EVs uh, and but we need to actually speak practically to those, the real benefits. For sure. Um, and I think that's what this year is an opportunity for, um, because we're going to have to battle some of the negative uh, things that have happened in the
0: last few years. For sure. So, John, Lauren, any thoughts or predictions for 2024?
2: Lauren, want to go go next? It, Lauren? Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> OK. Um, wow. Lots of things. So uh, All the analysts are predicting that there's going to be a downturn in the automotive market in the U.S. next year. I do not agree because next year is a presidential election year. And it just so happens that in every presidential election year, car sales go great. I've just observed this over the years. So it should be a pretty good year. In fact, you know, December came in really strong, came in far stronger than the whole year for 2023. And I think that's probably an indication of a good kickoff to the year especially if the Federal Reserve starts to lower interest rates, which, you know, right. it looks like it could do. That'll be a, an instant boon to to car sales. I don't think the $7,500 automatic, you know, uh, uh, at, at point of sale is going to make that much difference um, because a whole bunch of cars just got brushed off the list that they don't qualify well, that's for a it. Point, yeah. And so, yeah. uh, but if you lease... You can get that money. And so my prediction is you're going to see a lot of EV lease deals getting advertised because that's where that's automakers are going to try to, to steer the consumer. Uh, but I think it's going to be a very tough year for EVs from this standpoint. Uh, the Republicans and Trump, the MAGA crowd especially, are on the warpath against EVs. and it And it really resonates with damn near half the car buying public. You know, uh, they don't believe in climate change. They think EVs are stupid. They think the government's trying to shove it down their their throat. They don't think these things should be subsidized. So I don't know if it's a plank of the platform of the Republican Party, but it's definitely a talking point. And so I think you're going to see the anti-EV uh, megaphones really cranked up in, in 2024. So... Like I said, I think overall for the industry, my gut feel is it's going to be pretty good. I believe EV sales will continue to grow. We'll will do better than what we did in 2023 because there's so many more new models coming out in different market segments, different price points from different brands. And there's, you know, a rule of law in the automotive industry, an inviolable uh, law. Every car that gets built gets sold. <laughs> They don't take them apart at the end of the year and send the components back to yeah. the suppliers. Every single one gets sold. Now, it might not sell in the time frame they want. They may not make a profit on it, but every one gets sold. So as more EVs get sold, EV sales are going to go up.
2: All right, I guess that's me. So yeah. Um, yeah, a, a, a couple of things. Basically, I agree with all of you on the $7,500 uh, tax credit. I've done a lot of analysis over the years using actual IRS data on who is actually filing uh, when you actually had to file the, your tax return for it. And it was mostly high income people. And I know... Uh, the people on the left side don't like to hear that because it's talking points for Republicans and conservatives but fundamentally it's true um, the people that buy EVs and use the tax credit are you know uh, modest income and higher higher income whoa, whoa, people wow. and so the the tax credit and the dealer, uh, rebate, etc. I think will have a modest impact, but fundamentally, people either are interested in buying an EV or they're not, and and so the the tax credit I believe has always been more of a discount okay. than it actually has been a driver of of, a, of incremental sales. Um, but I do think that the rebate. Aspect the point of sale aspect will help a little bit, but 100% agree with John. Um, I've I'm on my third lease of Tesla. I fundamentally believe okay. that leasing an EV is better because of the ongoing improvement of the technology. I mean. You know, the, the, the car's range improves 10%, 15% every, like, 18 months, 20%, right. whatever it is. The, uh, the hardware yeah. gets better. I'll the software that. gets better. Like, I just think it makes sense to, to lease an EV rather than, than <laughs> buy one. And then you add in the tax credit. You can get a $160,000 Lucid and they get the $7,500 credit if you lease it, right? So why not lease, right? So um, – so this could be a year of the market finally wakes up that leasing is not a bad idea, that actually for EVs, it maybe it's actually the, the better approach. So we could see a growth in leasing this year um, on the um, the battery aspect, Chase. Um, I think one of the interesting things has been is like how Ford had the NMC Lightning and the and the LFP Lightning, so 300 miles of range, 230 miles of range, different price points, and I think that I think that bifurcation is probably going to only increase, and that um, yeah. the automakers realize that in order for EV sales to grow, they actually have to be more affordable. And that more and more people, especially experienced EV owners, realize they actually don't need 400 miles of range, in in that you know 250 actually works for most people, right? And so I think understanding, yeah. just like you have models that have a, you know, a V6 and a V8, et cetera, like people will realize yeah. that you know this will work for me. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I think just to kind of hop in on the LFP thing real quick, I think. Um, but then the <laughs> last, I, I think a lot of people didn't expect LFP to be. So popular so quickly, and it really is the easy button for new EV drivers. They don't have to worry about charging it to a certain percentage, yeah. it just they can yeah. charge it to 100 every time. I, I really think yeah. you're right that that's,
2: and then of course, really... we, it, they don't burn. Yeah, and we've got you know, we've got sodium coming, which is already here. Um, so we don't have mm-hmm. to wait for the solid state because sodium is already in some of the Chinese uh EVs as of right now, and that's going to be a game changer as well. But, um in the interest of time, moving on the sort of the, the other sort of my predictions are um, we we could see um, actually sort of a return of of plug-in hybrid sales, um, mostly driven by Toyota, of course, because the, they've hitched their pony to regular hybrids and plug-in hybrids. The problem with with Toyota is is they're just not making very many plug-in hybrids. They're all made in Japan and they're yeah. not and they're not bringing enough over here. I've talked to executives at Toyota and whether you believe them or not, they've told me they just don't have enough batteries um, for like the RAV4 and stuff like that. Uh, and mm-hmm. so hopefully they get that fixed. Um, but I think I know Kia and Hyundai still believe strongly in plug in plug-in hybrids. They believe that the middle of the country is not ready for BEVs. And so they're, they're playing the multi powertrain platform and they have some you know good plug-in hybrids they have 30 35 40 miles of range um and so again it's it i could be wrong on this but but we could see a a a spurt of growth in plug-in hybrids this year agree with john also that a lot of people are are predicting a down year in ev sales but i i think you know we also have to realize that that a lot of people are on their second and third EV, right? So we have this this existing market of people are turning in their leases and getting another EV, and that that foundation is growing significantly. So we um, we'll probably see a, a modest growth um, overall in EV sales this year. Um, and then the last thing, my sort of big thing that I've been harping on about on on LinkedIn a lot the last six months is. Um, 2024 is going to be kind of an ugly year in the charging space. I think we're going to see a shakeout and a bloodbath, and um, some uh, a, a lot more bankruptcies and mergers and consolidation and stuff. There are this is this is the 1849 gold rush, right? And there there are too many people that moved to California to try to get rich with DC fast charging. Uh, and there's just not enough gold in the ground, right? Like you know, like as I like to say, you know, we may we may add between thirteen thousand five hundred to fifteen thousand fast charging ports, Matt, this year. Like six, sixty oh, some God. percent of those will be <laughs> Tesla chargers, right? Uh, and so, eighty right. to ninety yeah. percent are going to be manufactured. The hardware manufactured by four to five manufacturers, but we have like a hundred companies that have entered the fast charging hardware space. It just the math doesn't work, right? the The pie The pie isn't big <laughs> enough. So, um, I won't mention their yeah, their names be because they're all my clients. But um, uh, there there's there are several of these companies that are already you know, in in trouble and seeking investors. And um, yeah, it's 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 it it could be a very ugly year in the charging space.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, I think that will be just one more thing to follow you on LinkedIn about. I I find a lot of the time you always have some pretty interesting posts around that, and I'm sure there'll be some big surprises uh, (laughs) coming this year. So I I just want to say, having gone over time, thank you so much, everyone, for being a part of this and for I think just continuing to come on the podcast and share your thoughts. This has been, I think probably one of the more, uh, fascinating, just having even a little, uh, difference in opinion. Occasionally, I think it turned out we all agreed on in the end, but, um, just having those conversations and really kind of recapping this past year. and looking forward to 2024. I think for anyone who is in kind of the EV or sustainable space, there's a lot to look forward for, for this year. There's some, there's definitely some, uh, uh, cloud uh, great clouds in the distance, especially around the uh, political side of stuff come up this year, as you can't even mention, John. But uh, I, I think this, I think it's going to be exciting either way. So I just want to say thank you all for joining and uh, looking forward to having you all on again soon. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks
2: for having us. Yeah. Thank you,
0: Chase. Thank you for joining us on this two-part journey, looking back with our panel, The Standout Moments for Electric Vehicles in 2023. I hope today's discussion on the impact of Chinese electric vehicles on global auto markets, the growing role of software, consumer preferences for user-defined vehicles, the challenges faced by legacy automakers in software integration, and the communication hurdles EV automakers face in engaging with the public has provided you with a deeper understanding and fresh insights. Our panel's predictions for 2024 have also undoubtedly given you much to think about regarding the future trends and developments in the electric vehicle sector. Also, check out part one of our panel as well, if you haven't already, where we discuss the impacts of the North American charging standard and how the rollout of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Funds changed the electric vehicle charging space in 2023. We also discussed the growth rate of electric vehicle sales and how legacy automakers have been responding to the sales in the auto market and also changing where they're putting investments for different types of powertrains, whether that be a fully electric vehicle or for a lot of the legacy automakers, kind of taking a step back and reinvesting more into plug-in hybrids and hybrid technology. Plus, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform to stay updated with the latest in electric vehicle news and discussions. Please also be aware that we are growing this podcast and positive ratings and reviews really do help grid connections grow so we can keep bringing you more episodes like today. Share this episode with your network to spread the word about the exciting developments in the industry and your support helps us continue to bring your expert insights and in-depth analysis of the ever-changing world of electric vehicles and how they tie to our grid. If this episode generated any questions or comments on what you want to have discussed more, please share them with the comments section on our YouTube page, or reach out to us on Twitter, where you can share your suggestions or even recommendations for future guests. Join us next time on the Grid Connections podcast, where we will continue to explore the cutting-edge innovations and challenges in the electric vehicle market. Until next week, remember... Whether you're a seasoned EV enthusiast or new to the world of electric mobility, the Grid Connections podcast is your go-to source for all things that tie to the grid. Thank you.